This morning is uh, August 8th, 2004. The message this morning is about being short. So I figured y'all would like that. Short. S-H-O-R-T. Short. And uh, this kind of like that Simpsons episode where there's a pastor who stands up and says, Today's sermon's all about what Ned did last night. We're preaching to Mandy this morning. <laughs> I'm teasing, sweetie. In your hands, you have something that the English uh, word looks like shima. It's pronounced more like shma. And one of the things that I wanted to do this morning was talk to you a little bit about Jewish prayer. We, uh, we're going to get into the word and we're going to study some things, but synagogue uh, worship and Jewish life uh, is centered around the most common prayer. It's kind of the, the summary of the fundamentals of the Jewish faith. And since our faith grows out of the Jewish faith, since we have Hebraic roots, I thought it would be a good idea to, to learn what these are. Many times when you're looking at Judaism from a Christian standpoint, we can be really critical. And one of the reasons we're critical is because much of the leadership was blinded to the ways of, of Jesus, didn't, didn't see Jesus, and didn't recognize him. And Judaism kind of seemed to take a left-hand turn after Jesus' coming, uh, or at least after the first century. And you see some additions that maybe we don't like. But this, what you have in your hands, goes all the way back to the Babylonian captivity. Jews, since 5600 B.C., have recited this every day. It's a part of their, their life. And Jesus was a Jew. All of Jesus' uh, apostles were Jews. So what we're fixing, fixing, what we're going to read as a prayer here, is something that all of the apostles would have grown up. Uh, reading as a prayer. And it's funny because the wording seems foreign to us. It's, it's, this is a transliteration, meaning that they took the literal Hebrew words and plugged them into English, and it doesn't flow as smoothly as our normal speech might flow. But uh, you'll, you'll hear bits of Scripture in it. And so I was going to read it, and you all follow along. You will see that there is Hebrew uh, above each of these, and this is... These are not Hebrew letters that you see. That's not the way that the Hebrews write. These are English letters written to help you pronounce the Hebrew. I'm not going to read it in Hebrew, but you can practice in the mirror at home if you like. The, Hebrew, or the Jewish prayer begins like this, and it's where you get the name Shema. Shema means uh, to be heard or hear, O Israel. It's, it's derived from that. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall speak of them when you sit at home and when you walk along the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And it shall come to pass, if you surely listen to the commandments that I give you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and all your soul, that I will give you rain to your land, the early and late rains, that you may gather in your grain, your wine, and your oil, and I will give you grass in your fields for your cattle. 
and you will eat and you will be satisfied. Beware lest your heart be deceived and you turn and serve other gods and worship them. And anger of the Lord will blaze against you and he will close the heavens and there will not be rain and the earth will not give you its fullness and you will perish quickly from the good land that the Lord gives you. So you shall put these, my words, on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them for a sign on your hands, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes, and you shall teach them to your children, and you shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk in the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates, in order to prolong your days and the days of your children. On the land that the Lord promised, your fathers that he would give them, as long as the days that the heavens are over the earth. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them that they should make themselves tzitzit, fringes, on the corners of their clothing throughout generations, and give the tzitzit of each corner a blue thread. And they shall be tzitzit for you. And when you look at them, you will remember all of the Lord's commandments and do them and not follow after your heart and after your eyes, which lead you astray. In order to remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God, I am the Lord, your God, who led you from the land of Egypt to be a God to you. I am the Lord, your God. The writer uh, that I borrowed this from, the guy who compiled this, makes this comment. You know, he says, wouldn't the words of the Shema be an awesome last words to have on our lips when the time comes for us to depart the world? I agree with you. I think it would be beautiful. Can you imagine that you would wake up each day and this is how you start your day? He says, do this when you wake up and when you lie down. Each day, they pray this at least twice in a day. And they do because it's a reminder of the promises, the covenants that God has given them. Well, those are covenants and promises that God's given us as well because we've been counted in their blessing. We've been included in their blessing. And I just thought it would be good to reflect on those. Every one of those principles comes straight out of the Scripture. And I I thought that they were beautiful. But when you hear that the disciples were praying, you have to wonder sometimes, what were they praying? Turn with me to Luke. hear anything in there that you've been taught about since I came back from Israel? You remember the doorpost and the gates? The mezuzah? How about the tzitzit? They're over there on that garment. You know, These are a part of everyday Jewish life and as you begin to envision Jews, as you read in the Word, you need to envision those things as part of their life. That they were wearing garments that had tzitzit on them with blue thread. That there were 613 knots to remind them of the commands. You need to have that perspective. Don't envision Jesus in the three-piece suit. Don't envision Jesus as an American. He's not, and you rob yourself of the Hebraic roots when you do that, and your understanding of the Scripture becomes dimmed. What we begin to do is we remake the Word in our image. We begin to view Jesus like we want Him to be. We begin to view the Scripture in a way that conforms to our culture rather than us conforming to its culture. In Luke 24... I'm tricking you a little bit here, and I don't mean to. It's just the way that this works out. But Luke 24, verse 50. Actually, let's start in verse 45. Then he, and he's Jesus, 
opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what, this, what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to, I am going to send to you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. What's the subject? Subject is them staying in the city until they've been clothed with something from on high so they can go be witnesses, right? Now let's read through the end. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him. Now everybody knows this is the ascension. And when this ascension happened from the Mount of Olives, it says he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. I just read to you a Jewish prayer. All right? This is not what he said to them, this prayer. This prayer is a daily reminder to the people. But did you know that there's a Jewish blessing? There's a blessing that all the priests of God were instructed by God to bless people. Now, tell me something. We're called a kingdom of priests. A holy and royal nation, right? Well, if God instructed the very first priest to bless people in a certain way, wouldn't it stand to reason that us as a kingdom of priests, a holy and royal nation, even the Israel of God, us Jews and Gentiles together, would follow that blessing? Doesn't that make sense? But it doesn't immediately come to mind when you read that, does it? That's because of our Americanized gospel. It's because when we watch the greatest story that's ever told, we see a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. It's because when we look at a picture of Jesus, we see a Viking Jesus. But as we begin to restore in our minds the Jewish roots of the Bible, you'll see a richness, a fullness. I want you to remember that the subject before he blessed them was about them being clothed with power from on high, clothed with something so that they could go out and be witnesses. Turn with me to Numbers and we're going to see what this blessing was. It's Numbers, i got to find it, but I think it's number 6. Yeah, it's number 6. And oddly enough, there's a title above it in your NIV Bible. It says, The Priestly Blessing. How odd it is that we read the Torah and we don't bring the Torah into the New Testament. We act like they're separate. All of you know that they're not separate. But we still make the division in our minds. We've been taught that they're not separate, that the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, and that the, Old, the New Testament lies in the Old Testament concealed. We've been taught that. But when you have read for years that Jesus raised his hands and gave them a blessing, we just thought it was any old blessing. But God tells the people of Israel in Numbers 6, verse 22, says the Lord says to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons. What were Aaron and his sons? They were the priesthood. They were a type of something that we are the reality of. Now, that might seem kind of arrogant, but that's what the New Testament says. This is how you are to bless them. The Israelites say to them, this is how priests are supposed to bless people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. Before Jesus left, before he ascended, the subject that he had been speaking to them about was being clothed with something from God. 
so that they would be a witness. The blessing He gave them was all about putting His name on them. This is why we're called Christians. It's why we go forth in the name of Jesus. It's why we pray in the name of Jesus. Because it was the priestly blessing He gave us. When we talk about the Lord making His face to shine upon you, when we talk about you having a peace, all of those things are reflected in the New Testament. You remember Stephen, his face shone like that of an angel? You remember he had peace while he was being stoned? This priestly blessing from Jesus has come upon us. It worked. So I say these two things before we get into the Word just to get your minds to begin to think Jews prayed in a certain way. You need to be familiar with that because we've inherited that blessing. Learn the Shema. You know, that was memorized before they were Judah's age. They could all do that. And not only do that prayer, but each part of that prayer comes from Deuteronomy. It comes from Leviticus. It comes from Numbers. You know, it comes from the Torah. They could quote all of the surrounding passages before they were Judah's age. You know, and we, we act like you know, the Jews were so blind. No, many of them really, really loved the Lord. The leadership was blind. They were blinded because they like men with power. They wanted to keep their power. They didn't want to become lowly. Is the church any different today? It's really not. What I'm going to teach today is about Zechariah. Uh, Mandy may have heard this before. I hope nobody else has. But I'm a, not Zechariah, Zacchaeus. And as I speak about Zacchaeus, the, the Scripture is going to teach us about the nation of Israel and the state of Israel. But it's applicable to what we experience in Christianity today. So as I apply some of it to Christianity today and, and Israel, and we talk about that relationship, I just want you to remember the priestly blessings that are given, the prayer. They had Jewish roots, and we need to learn them. We need to not be guilty of not understanding what we've received. When somebody asks you to pray for them, to bless them, you know, in the charismatic world, we, we lay our hands on somebody, we wait, and we believe we have to hear from heaven what we say, right? God's already told us what to say. Now, I'm not telling you that the other is wrong. I'm just telling you, at the very least, this is the minimum. You know, If you want to bless people, this is, this is how you bless them. You need to put the Lord's name upon them. You know, that's, that's a blessing. Okay, turn with me to Numbers 11. I want to read you a couple, couple scriptures to get uh, a thought in, in mind, and then we will go to our key text. I already put y'all to sleep this morning. Okay. Numbers 11, <clears throat> verse 23. Before we read verse 23, everybody in here at some point or another has said that you have a love for Israel. And I say that I have a love for Israel. I've uh, been there a couple times. Very fortunate. I hope all of us get to go together. I really want to do that. We need to not be guilty of the kind of things that a man is that says he loves his wife but treats her poorly. You know? The guy that says he loves his job but complains all of the time. We don't want to be hypocritical in our actions. If we really do love Israel, if we really do love the Jewish people, if we really do love the Hebrew text, let's find out more about it. Let's interact with it. Let's let it become a part of our lives instead of segmenting into our own little brand of Christianity. It's not supposed to be that way. There's a format already established, established for 1,600 years before Jesus came. And although it had some failings it was for a purpose and that purpose has not died it just fell a little short of fulfilling what God wanted to do we've received the fullness of the ages the completion has come upon us 
But that doesn't mean the other rungs of the ladder have gone away. We have completed something that was short. Okay, on this idea of short. Numbers 11, verse 23. The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? You will now see whether or not I will, what I say will come true for you. I'm just quoting God here for a moment because I want to get this figure of speech on the record, if you will. I've been hanging out with attorneys too much. You know, I'm trying not to think in legal terms. But when God uses the term, is the Lord's arm too short, what does that mean? Does he literally mean that God's got, you know, stubby little arms? No, he's saying, am I not able to cause this to come about for you, right? In Isaiah 50, turn to Isaiah. Holy are you, Lord. In Isaiah 50, at the beginning of the chapter, it says, this is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgression, your mother was sent away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no, no one to answer? Was my arm too short to ransom you? That's a rhetorical question. It doesn't really require an answer. Why? When God says, is my arm too short to ransom you, what's he really saying? Yeah, you don't realize... That it's not too short. I'm not to be short in this manner of speaking. You know, short can have all kind of meanings. If I'm short with you, what does that mean? It means I didn't take the time to be courteous to you. I was short. My speech was lacking something. It lacked courteousness. It lacked compassion. If something, is, if your arm is too short, which is what God's implying here, is my arm too short? He's saying. Man, you just don't have what it takes to reach what you need to reach. That's the use of short here, right? Well, there's another one in Isaiah 59, but we, I mean, there's thousands of them. The whole idea here is that when God's speaking of short, he's talking about a lack of ability to do something, you know? So is my arm too short? And the answer is obviously no. No, it's not. Um, conversely, is man's arm too short? Well, yeah. That's why the Bible says if a man leans on his own arm for salvation, he's cursed because it's too short. It doesn't work out right. Okay. So with that in mind, let's turn to Matthew. I'm going to get a couple principles out of the way, and then I promise we'll have a nice, clear, concise teaching, something that you'll be able to take notes in and it'll make sense. But we're just kind of building a foundation. Like I said, I've probably been hanging out with the attorneys too much. Matthew 9, you see another phrase that appears in the Bible that I want you to understand what it means before we get to this Zacchaeus scripture. Matthew 9, verse 10. It says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, sinners is in parentheses there, like it's an expression, tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Isn't it pretty obvious that everybody is equating tax collecting with sinning? Isn't it pretty obvious that we're comparing the same 
two groups as if they were equals. You know, no different than many of our expressions today. And every one that just came to mind was bad, so I won't use it. But by the time that Rome had oppressed Israel, tax collectors were Jews appointed by Rome to extort the people. So not very popular guys. Pretty much the low part of society. And Matthew, when he's writing this, mentions tax collectors more than any of the other Gospels. Why do you think that might be? He was a tax collector. You know, if you were Baptist and then you got filled with the Holy Ghost, you you might have a special thing for Baptists. You might talk about the Baptist background more if you were Catholic. And then you came to a fuller understanding of Christ. You might talk about Catholicism. Well, Matthew was a tax collector equated with sinners. I mean, considered to be on an equal level with a sinner just by his profession. And so he talked about him more than all of the others. Uh, there's three or four more scriptures along these lines in Matthew. But one time, <laughs> the Pharisees said, Oh, no, you're, you're a drunkard, you're demon-possessed, and you hang out with tax collectors. Putting all three of those things <laughs> on the same level. It's not just enough to be a sinner and a tax collector, but you're a demon and a drunkard too. In other words, they're all lumped together. Does that make sense? Tax collecting is a very bad thing. Now turn to Luke 19, and we'll get right into the Word. I know I run the risk of if I'm telling you about Jewish prayer and I'm telling you about God's arm not being too short and then talking about tax collecting and all of them seem unrelated of losing you in it. And I'm worried about that, and I hope I don't. See if they apply to Luke 19 when we read it, and then we'll explain it. I'm just going to read it, and then we'll come back and explain it. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord. Here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay it back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, why on earth are we talking about Jewish prayer? Why on earth do we talk about God's arm being too short? Why talk about the tax collectors just to read that? Most of the time, if you're looking at a shadow and a type, where is it? Most of the time. Parable. Most of the time when we study things that we call shadows, the shadows are found in the, and the realities are found in the New Testament, right? This is an example of a shadow and type that is in the New Testament. You say, golly, I, I thought the New Testament was the reality. Well, Jesus plainly says something, and there's a, a reality in that. But if you look at it a little closer, what you see is much, much more depth to the story and why it was included. 
But you don't see it if you don't look with Jewish eyes, if you don't look with uh, Hebraic perspective. Let's start again. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. In the Bible, what does Jericho represent? Jericho is the kingdoms of the world. When the Israelites left, or let me say it this way, when the Israelites began the conquest of the promised land, they were led by somebody. Who were they led by? Joshua. What was Joshua's name? Jesus. See, they're the exact same Hebrew word. So when Jesus led the people of Israel to, in the conquest of the new land, they started at Jericho. It represented the kingdoms of the world. How was Jericho defeated? Was it defeated through man's arm? Mm-mm. It was defeated by supernatural power. As, as the ark of God's presence began to circle the kingdoms of the world, and those who had been appointed to hold a shofar, the uh, authority of the ram, blew it. As people spoke with the authority of God, with the authority of the king of the sheep, the kingdom of the world fell. They did this seven times. And on the seventh day, they did it seven times on the seventh day. This was a shadow and type in the Old Testament of the way that throughout the perfect length of time, God's people would remain silent as they marched through the world until God told them to speak. But when they spoke, they would speak with the authority of the king of the sheep and it would cause the kingdom of the world to fall. Well, when we start reading in Luke 19, it says Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. You could say Jesus had entered the world and was passing through. Doesn't John tell us that Jesus came to that which was his own and they didn't recognize him? The word was in uh, the Word was in the world, and the Word was God. You know, all of these scriptures speak about the Word becoming flesh. It happened on earth. But was this his permanent residence? No. He's just passing through. He was just passing through for a specific purpose. So in this, Jesus entered Jericho, or the world, and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. What do you know about wealth? What have I taught you about wealth in the eye of the needle? It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, isn't it? So you could take this story as Jesus passing through the world and he comes across somebody who's not just a sinner, a tax collector. He's the chief among sinners. And he's not just a heavy-duty sinner. He's also somebody that it's hard to enter the kingdom of God because he's wealthy. But at the same time, Jesus said that, that it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. He said, with God, all things are possible. Jesus came to the earth to do the impossible. The same way that Joshua entered Jericho and the supernatural caused the kingdom of the world to fall, Jesus entered the world and the supernatural occurred. So Jesus is here. He's passing through Jericho. He sees a chief tax collector, a chief sinner, and a wealthy one. This should be somebody that if you were making a list from one to a million of the last guy to get saved... This would be the last guy to get saved. So to encourage us. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. Is it anybody's fault that they're born short? What does what you being short have to do with? I'm talking about from uh, a genetic standpoint. How, why, are, why is one person taller than another? has to do with their genes. 
their genetics, right? See, I didn't decide to be 5 feet 11 or whatever I am, 5 feet 11 and a half. You know, you'll fight for those quarter inches when it's important. Somebody else didn't decide to be 7. Shaquille O'Neal did not place an order at birth for his height. What determined our heights? Our genetics, right? It came from our parents. Well, it's not Zacchaeus' fault he was a short man. But we're not talking about stature this morning. He was short in the same way that God asked, is my arm too short? He could not get to where he could see Jesus. It was not in him. He was short. But it wasn't his fault. He got it from his parents. See, we were born with a sin nature. We didn't, we didn't place that order from birth. It was there. We got it from our parents. Now, today we're taught to blame our parents for that and be angry with our parents. The problem is they had a set of parents, and they got it from theirs. And our grandparents had a set of parents, and they got it from theirs. And it goes all the way back to Adam. So you can't blame anybody. The sin nature has come from Adam all the way down. Zacchaeus was a short man, and he couldn't see Jesus. He wanted to. God had placed eternity in his heart. He wanted to see him, but he couldn't. So I wonder what God provided. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. See, fig trees, we know, in the Bible represent the nation of Israel. But what on earth is a sycamore fig tree? Well, like olive trees, like apple trees, like orange trees, like so many kinds of trees, there's more than one kind of fig tree. Now, what's special about a sycamore fig tree is that it produces, big surprise here, figs. But they're not figs like every other kind of fig. These figs have a hard, waxy encapsulation around them. And what you have to do if you want this fruit to be useful, if you have a sycamore fig tree and you need to eat, there's something you have to do to the fruit before you can eat it. You have to take a little knife out. And you have to take, you all know what a fig looks like, right? You know? about that long, oblong shape, and you have to circumcise the fig because it won't grow properly. It won't be edible for fruit as long as that hard, waxy shell is on it. But if you circumcise it, then it grows right. It gets the right amount of air. It gets all of those things so that it becomes edible for you. See, from a natural standpoint, you know, if we're just watching Discovery Channel and we're seeing in the creation this but not understanding the truth, the waxy hard shell is there to protect it from the environment. Well, I found out a long time ago that I had a hard waxy shell in my life and that it was to protect me from the environment. I became hard. I became tough. I became all of those things. I placed a hard waxy shell on myself because I was short. I had inabilities and insecurities and I wanted to protect myself from the environment. But if I wanted to become edible, which is the purpose of fruit, to nourish the master who grew it, I had to be circumcised in my heart. Well, what we're seeing here is that Zacchaeus wanted to see, see Jesus as he was passing through the world, but he was too short. He couldn't. So he ran to a sycamore fig tree. And we see he began to climb it. wonder what the sycamore fig tree could be. This is religious Israel. This is the ladder that God provided for people to climb to be able to see him. It in and of itself was not perfect. It needed to be circumcised. It, it had problems in and of itself, but it was a means to see Jesus. The reason 
that the nation of Israel exists, the reason that Judaism exists, was to provide us with a means to see Jesus. Now, just to be in the sycamore fig tree and see Jesus was not enough. A circumcision of the heart had to occur. That's why Jews today are not saved, although every Jew will be saved. You say, oh, golly, how could that be? I don't know. How could it be that Jesus said if a man wants to save his life, he must lose it? You know, there's a lot of mysteries in the gospel I don't quite understand, but Paul said all Israel will be saved, and yet that's not what we see at the present. We even see many Jews as enemies of the gospel. Not all, but many, just like many of our family members are enemies of the gospel. Doesn't make them bad people. It just means they don't understand. So Zacchaeus runs. He climbs the sycamore fig tree that is Israel. And that provides a short man with a glimpse of the Messiah. Then what happens? Uh, So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. (laughs) Isn't it interesting? Where did Jesus come first? To his people, the nation of Israel. You know, this short man who couldn't see Jesus knew Jesus was coming that way because the Word had promised Jesus would present Himself to the people first. When Jesus reached the spot, you got that? When Jesus reached the spot, God has ordained times and places where we would live and work. He did this so that we would reach out and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. There was a spot, a strategic spot in Matt and I's life was in a little car sitting outside of an apartment complex. That was a spot determined by God. A strategic place for me one time was in a bedroom where I shook a fist in the air at God. That was a spot. That was the spot. I've taught you before that God has a place called there. He told Elijah, go there and there I will feed you. There I will provide for you. All of us have a place called there. This is another example of that. There was a spot where Zacchaeus and Jesus were supposed to meet. He used a sycamore fig tree to be able to see him. That was the way that Jesus was going. And when they reached that spot, we need to recognize our divine appointments in our life. I met a man the other day as a business deal, solely as a business deal. Truthfully, I went into the meeting as a salesman wanting to persuade him. You know, persuasion... Persuasion is one of those things that, depending on the degree of it, you could call that manipulation. I wanted to persuade him to do business with my company because it's in our financially, financially it's in our best interest. And when I walked into the room and our eyes first met, I realized this is one of those spots. This is one of those determined times. I don't need to persuade this guy. I don't need to be worldly. And I should never be worldly, but I need to be careful not to be worldly in my sales techniques because God's arranged this. This is not something my arm would be too short to pull off what's happening here. Anyway, there's a spot that you meet Jesus. I don't know how I got on that. It's been on my mind a lot lately. So when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Get this. What was the ironic blessing for? The ironic blessing that we read in number 6 was for people to bear the name. When, we, when Jesus gave the ironic blessing to His disciples, He had just told them about being clothed from on, on high with power so that they could carry the name. 
when that when does that happen in Christianity? It comes when Jesus makes his abode, his house, in you. It comes when Jesus says, I'm going to stay in your house today. Today is the day of salvation. When he stays in your house, that is his spirit setting up residence in you. See, Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. He climbed the tree. That in itself wasn't the means to an end. Soon as he saw Jesus, Jesus said, get out of the tree. We're going to your house today. I'm going to show you a better... The tree was a means to see me. The law was a means to get you to see me. But now that you've seen me, I'm going to show you a better way. I'm going to live with you. Do you see that? Do you see the gospel in this? Do you see the nation of Israel reflected in it? So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. That's no different than the day that we first, we had a desire to see Jesus. The first time he was revealed to us, we became obedient and, and gladly welcomed him into our hearts. The same thing. We made our abode with Jesus. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. What do people say when guys like me get saved? What do they say? Oh, come on, man. Him? Would Jesus really make him his abode in Him? You know? I mean, come on. You've got to be kidding me. Are we talking about the same person? And so no, we said, no, I'm a new creation. But to everybody else, you're the same person. They can't believe that God would really join with you. Come on, we're talking about the same Cassidy. This thing will wear off. It's not real. You know, give it six months and then let's talk. Isn't that what they said about us? It's what the world always says. We're talking about the same Eric. You know, I, I remember walking down the, the hallway in school and I said, what's wrong to this little girl? You didn't think Jesus would save somebody like me? She looked at me and she said, no. No, I, I never thought Jesus would save somebody like you. And the implication was I'm still not sure. I see something that's, you know, causing me to question, but I, I'm still not sure. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. One thing that I love about Jesus is he realizes you're too short. That's why he provides the trees along the way in the spot, in the place called there. He provided you with the Baptist church. He provided you with the Methodist church, with the Catholic church, as trees to climb until he came your way and you all reached the place called there, the spot. And then he showed you a better way. Oh, my God, somebody who's Baptist or Catholic or Methodist is going to hear this and say that their way is inadequate. It is. It is. It's not evil. It's not wrong. It's not bad. But is it incomplete? Absolutely. The day that those churches laid down their denominational doctrines and embraced the entire Word of God without a black highlighter, without a claim of special interpretation, then we'll change our mind. Is our way inadequate? Absolutely. See, this is not a one-time process. This is an everyday thing. You have to follow Jesus. I'm not ashamed to... Here's the thing. Somebody hears that and they say, Oh, God, he's downing the Baptist church. What I'm really trying to do is teach us to look at the Baptist church in a positive light instead of negative. It was the latter that allowed you to see Jesus. Not, Not a bad thing. Not something that corrupted you and tried to veil it and give you a false gospel, which is usually how I might present that. The truth is, it was the latter that you could see Jesus, and so was the Catholic Church, and it remains that for many people. That's why we have to be careful how we talk about it. Is the sycamore fig tree flawed? 
Yeah, but who did it do good for? Zacchaeus. So if you run into Zacchaeus and all you tell him about is how the sycamore fig tree is uncircumcised, what does that do for him? You're trashing his experience, aren't you? We need to not trash people's experience. And hey, look, there could be a mirror right under that clock because I'm the king of doing that. But Jesus came for the chief of sinners, so. (laughs) All right. Uh, When I saw that word chief tax collector, you know who I thought about? I mean, immediately who this story is to me, this is Paul. He called himself the chief among sinners. He, He persecuted, killed the church of God. But if anybody had climbed that sycamore fig tree, he had. If anybody really wanted to see Jesus, he did. He was just confused. And so when he met Jesus, from that moment, he made his abode with him. You know? Isn't that good? All right. All the people saw this, and they began to mutter, He is going to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look. Here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. What did that see that caused him to want to do that? Don't you just tell me, Jesus. That's your Sunday school answer. Read that text and tell me, what did he see that caused him to say that? What, Judah? Okay, you hold that thought, baby. Anybody else? Something happens here. It says all the people began to mutter. All the people began to mutter. He is going to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord. In other words, when Zacchaeus heard what the people were saying about Jesus because of him, it produced in him a desire to do something, to prove that this was real, to let his walk demonstrate that this was real. See, when people began to say, Golly, Matthew, I don't think that will ever last. Surely God's not with Matthew. I mean, he thinks he's better than us. Or when people began to say, oh, right, Eric got saved. It produced in us a desire to prove them wrong because we cared about the reputation of Jesus. See, Zacchaeus hears this in first thing. He says, Lord, Lord, look, if I've done anything wrong, I'll pay it back. If, if I've wronged somebody, I'll give them four times. What was required? That's the desire in Christians to make sure that God's name is not profaned because of their actions. That's when we say, hey, the law says that I've got to pay it back plus a tenth. I'll pay it back four times. We go above and beyond. And I don't remember what the law actually says other than four times was twi- more, than tw- excuse me, more than twice what the law told him he had to do. See, We have in us the desire to make sure God's name is not profaned because of us because we realize we were sinners when He came to live in our house. And His reputation is at stake in us. That's important. It's important. How do you know that salvation... How did Jesus know? Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham... For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. How did Jesus know that He was saved? And don't you tell me it's because He was the Son of God or He's omniscient. None of that is relevant. His actions. His actions prove it. Why did He call Him the Son of Abraham? Was it because He was a Jew? No! He was a Jew before. He was a Son of Abraham before. But why does Jesus call Him a Son of Abraham? Because like Abraham... He showed he believed it by what he did. This is James born out in this man's life. 
This is what it means to be a son of Abraham. Jesus didn't need a word of knowledge from the Father. He didn't need the Holy Spirit welling up in him, showing him the heart of Zacchaeus. We always say, oh, well, you can never know what's in a man's heart. He didn't have to. He saw it in his actions. Every tree is known by its fruit. Likewise, you will know them by their fruit. Look in the mirror. What kind of fruit are we producing? Does it tell everyone around us, this one is a son of Abraham? He didn't call him a Christian. He didn't call him a follower of Christ. He didn't even call him a father of the way. He said, this guy really is a son of Abraham. What does that mean? What would it mean to somebody if you walked up and said, I'm a son of Abraham? It means nothing today because we're stupid. Our faith was founded on a man becoming a friend of God, being blessed to bless others, all nations being blessed through him because of his faith. Now, I'm not getting all Unitarian and weird saying it doesn't matter what your faith is as long as you have a faith. I'm telling you that there is a faith of Abraham and anybody who is in it is a friend of God. That happens through meeting Jesus. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. First John tells us, If you love Him, you will walk as He walked. You will obey Him. Well, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. And if you love Him, you will seek and save that which was lost. Because we're going to walk as He walked. You're going to look for the people that are short that the world might cast over. Maybe Saul would be a better choice in their eyes because he's a head taller. But God knows the ones that are short, that are trying to use whatever ladder they can find, whatever sycamore fig tree, whatever Catholic church, whatever Methodist church, whatever Baptist, Pentecostal church they can find. They are trying to see Jesus. If we're Jesus' hands and feet, where are they going to see Jesus? In you. And we are supposed to be their friends. And when everybody mutters, oh, I can't believe he's hanging out with the tax collector, if you will, whether it be a sinner or your Pentecostal friends telling you, I can't believe he's hanging out with that whole Catholic group. Our job is to make an abode, to make a place of living and fellowship and dwelling with people that need Jesus. Because we were all born too short. And then by their actions, you'll know when salvation has come to them. You know, you can see when somebody gets saved. You don't have to hear it. You can see it. You can hear all kinds of things, but see that somebody's not saved. No, I don't know. I mean, I hadn't worked this much in quite some time as I have the last few weeks. And I'm reading thousands of documents. I'm staying up all night. Uh, one of the situations where you have to be worried about whether you say and or the, you know, but or or. You know, I mean, we're talking about really tedious stuff. And so maybe I'm just happy with anything. You know, when you're in the desert, you see a cracker, man, it looks like a T-bone if you hadn't had anything to eat. And I've been on a little bit of the desert, but to me, this is good stuff. You see the gospel in 15 verses. And more than just the gospel, because we usually say that the gospel is, you know, Jesus died and He rose again and He can be your Savior. Man, that's the gospel for... Not even Judah's age. That's the gospel for Gabe. The gospel for us is that entire story. It's God's story. And that, that portrays it. If you, can't, if you can't remember what the purpose for the nation of Israel is, if you can't remember those things, if you don't remember all the dates, if you can't quote the Shema, or you can't quote the Aaronic blessing, or any of those things, 
Surely you can remember the story of Zacchaeus. And it tells you the whole rest of the story. You know, it's a way to remember it all. It's like NASA, you know. It's like an acronym that teaches you all of the rest. If you can't remember the National Aeronautic, whatever, 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 you can remember NASA. Well, if you can't remember the 1,600 years of Jewish history, you can remember Zacchaeus and it tells you what it was for. It's what it was for. So what we want is we want our hearts to be circumcised. We want to climb whatever God gives us to get closer to Him. And then when He says, hey, that was just a tool to get you closer, leave that, come further. Because He does that constantly. It wasn't a one-time event. For me, at one time it was a church. Then it was another church. Then it was one city. Then another city. See, you, you climbing the sycamore fig tree are all the things that He's told you to do that day. But there is another day that comes when you have to do something else. You go make your house with Him somewhere else. You know, it's all these steps of faith. Nothing that He's told you to do is a means to an end in and of itself. In other words, He told you to go to the mission field at some point in your life. That's great. You did it. That's wonderful. That's a sycamore fig tree. You got to the top of it. Now it's time to go do something else. You don't stop. He told me to come to Sugarland. It's not the end of my life. You know, he told me to start a church. Well, we got a, a start, you know, but I, I, we're not done. That was just the top branch. Now he says, come, I want you to do this. See, there is no room to rest on your laurels in Christianity. I'm sick of hearing that, oh, well, I know that this is that way and this is that way, but, you know, they really gave up a lot for the gospel. Or, you know, feeling as if we're in, God's indebted to us for our past walk. Everything we've done is a sycamore fig tree to get us to the next level because Paul, at the end of his walk, said, at the end of his walk, said, not that I've attained this. He had not attained it, but he made it his goal. So none of us need to act as if we've arrived. And when we see other people, we need to recognize, wow, they're in the very first sycamore fig tree and I might be in the 15th. But they're trying. Give people credit for what they are trying to do. I have uh, a relative that calls me intoxicated constantly. And the scuttlebutt in the family is, oh, golly, I wish they wouldn't do that. And how it inconveniences them and everything. You know what I see? I see her on a branch of a sycamore fig tree. She hadn't even reached the top, but she's trying. Even intoxicated, short, if you will, she's trying to find out how to see Jesus. So what's my job? To do whatever it takes to help her see Jesus. Not to ridicule her for being in a sycamore fig tree. You know? You might be on the third branch in some church. Or be on the first branch, totally lost, and it'd be equivalent. <laughs> you know? All trees, branches are different heights. So, anyway, let's stand up. Let's pray that God circumcise our heart, that we're willing to make our abode with Him, that we're willing to show by our actions salvation has come to us. We're going to close the CD here and pray.